Welcome back to The Joseph Cox Show. The benefit of it being The Joseph Cox Show is that I can talk about whatever I want to. So later this week, I will do another Torah podcast, and I'll go over the Parsha of the week. But today, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to talk about Torah-based economics. The reason for this is simple. We are in a period of massive economic change. Coronavirus, combined with exponentially more capable robotics and a concentration of economic, social, and even political power in fewer and fewer corporate and government hands, is leading to massive changes. The continued rise of coronavirus in Israel, despite our massive vaccination campaign, is also deeply worrying. Some things that we're experiencing now may be far more permanent than we'd like. Now, of course, everybody's looking at the crisis as an opportunity to put in the reality they'd like to see. Given all of what's going on, it isn't hard to imagine a future with, let's say, regular stimulus payments serving as a sort of universal basic income, or seeing logistics, delivery, and food service workers being phased out in mass in favor of automated systems. It isn't hard to imagine, to put a bit of a Marxist spin on it, a world in which capital is far more powerful than labor simply because the labor isn't much needed. It also isn't hard to imagine all that unneeded labor deciding to up and vote and massively redistribute wealth. We're going to go through some economic change. And in this environment, it is really, really important to step back and ask a basic question. What do we actually want? What purpose is economics supposed to serve? Is our concern income inequality? Is it opportunity? Is it property rights and the economic growth they tend to drive? Is it food and comfort? Over the last few podcasts, you might have noticed a bit of a conservative streak. I decried the efforts of Joseph's welfare on his brothers. I attacked the collectivization he drove. I spoke about freedom, not in terms of freedom from want and need, but in terms of the freedom to choose and take personal responsibility despite the risks. You might assume, given the recent content, that I read the Torah in a conservative economic light. But that isn't actually the case. My mother was a professor at a local college. One of her colleagues had a class called Marxist Influences on Pre-Socratic Thought. We used to laugh at the ridiculousness of it. Marx established a way of looking at the world thousands of years after Socrates. Trying to suggest that those ideas had an influence on pre-Socratic thought was anachronistic at best. The challenge is more than anachronism, though. When you try to impose ideas like capitalism and Marxism on texts and ideas that were based on very different worldviews, you risk failing to see what those worldviews were actually talking about, what they were actually concerned about. You're so busy casting everything you're seeing into your modern mold that you fail to realize what the ancients or what other people were actually arguing for and about. The same thing applies to Torah. If you try to cast it into a conservative economic mold, you can find your sources. You can find the dangers of welfare. You can find poor laws that had no actual enforcement and thus were calls for moral rather than state action. You can find commandments to treat rich and poor the same under the law. You can find commandments against theft that care not a whit what the motivation for that theft might be. At the same time, if you try to cast it into a liberal economic mold, you can also find a lot of support. There are commandments to support the widow, the poor, and the orphan. The corners of fields are left for the poor. You have to pay wages immediately. Loaning money with interest is almost entirely prohibited. You have to redistribute land every 50 years. If you want to push the text into either mold, into either system, you can. 
and religious people do this routinely as a way of arguing that their particular modern perspective is actually the right modern perspective. But when they do this, they miss the ideas the text is actually arguing for. They have the wrong filter on their lens. And I think those ideas are critically important for answering the question we should all be asking right now. What do we actually want? If you look at the list I just gave you, the Torah clearly has both liberal and conservative ideas. So what is the Torah trying to accomplish? Let's begin to walk through a few examples and see what we can glean from them. The first concept I want to look at is the disconnect between creation and acquisition. It isn't obvious, but it runs deeply throughout the text. Creation is absolutely central to the Torah. We are created in the image of God, and the first thing we know about him is that he is the creator, or she, depending on your perspective. When he creates something related to creation, he calls it good. Notably, heaven, night, and even Shabbat are not good. The term is focused on a connection to creation, and heaven, night, and Shabbat are not connected to creation. Goodness in the Torah is almost entirely, with the exception of one indirect verse, two indirect verses, entirely separate from the concept of holiness. As I read it, and I can go into more detail another time, the failure to create leads to our exposure to greater and greater evil as a spur to creation. And eventually we are banished from the garden because it is better for us to experience good and evil than to experience neither. But Hashem doesn't create in order to own. It seems that He creates in order to create us and then to rest on the Shabbat, establishing holiness. As I read it, He creates in order to have a relationship with us. In a mirror image, I believe we are meant to create in order to have a relationship with Him. That relationship is holiness. But holiness requires the absence of both creation and destruction. It's separate. The disconnect between acquisition and creation is starkly highlighted in the stories of Lamech's sons, which I went through a couple weeks ago. Very early on in the Torah, we learn about three sons, all of whose names have a connection to the word Yaval, which is to acquire. And they all acquire money. Their names are all forms of passive acquisition, or in the case of Tuvalkain, an active acquisition, but not earnings. They create less and less aggressively as they move forward. The first one is a, is a cowboy or a cattle herder or something along those lines. The next one is in the entertainment business, perhaps the prostitution business. And he acquires as well, but more passively. And then you have Tuvalkain who acquires through selling arms. Their actions, their focus on acquisition, leads to the complete breakdown of society. It would seem that this sort of acquisition without creation is inherently a bad thing. And the further down they go, the more their acquisition is connected to destruction. At the same time, though, that root, Yaval, is a central economic plank of the Torah. It refers to the 50-year cycle in which people get their ancestral lands back. They acquire without creating. It is also used just before the giving of the Torah. The people are to prepare for the Hemshech HaYovel, in which they will come up the mountain. 
There isn't a Hemshech HaYovel that actually happens at Har Sinai, at the Mount Sinai, for reasons we'll get to when we get to that Parsha. But something magical and wonderful is happening there. It has something to do with the concept of acquisition disconnected from creation. While the reference on Har Sinai is almost impossible to understand, the reference to land ownership is far clearer. People aren't getting back their ancestral lands. We think of it that way. You're getting back your family's lands. But actually, the lands belong to Hashem. People are getting back what is their right because of their relationship to God, not because of who, what family they belong to. But the concept of Yovel doesn't apply to all property. People aren't suddenly on the same footing. There's no redistribution of gold or even real estate within the cities. What people are specifically acquiring is land that can be worked. It is land that is worthless unless it is worked. As I read it, because of our connection to God, we regularly reacquire our rights to engage in creative work. What we have, then, is our first two Torah-based economic rules. First, creation is critical, but acquisition is not. And second, we have a right to engage in creative work. So if acquisition is somehow disconnected from creation, where does acquisition come from? As we read further in the text, it seems that, at least on a national level, that acquisition is in the hands of Hashem. There are curses in which we plant but do not harvest, and there are blessings in which our plantings yield unnatural results. The question is, what triggers these curses or blessings? Specifically, what triggers a lack of acquisition? Later in the Torah, there are many things that trigger national curses. They're often tied to our relationship to God. But these national curses only occur after the sin of the calf, when the relationship between the Jewish people and Hashem changes. Before that sin, our relationship to Hashem is far more basic. Before that sin, there was only one national curse. And I'm going to translate the word for this coming pasuk, ana, as impoverish. It can also mean afflict. And I'm going to use the word ya'al for the plural, because conventional English misses this important distinction. So here it goes. From Shemot 2221. Ya'al shall not impoverish any widow or father's child. If you impoverish them greatly, because of which they cry out greatly to me, I will surely hear their cry. My nostrils will flare, and I will kill you all with a sword, and you all's wives shall be widows, and you all's children shall be fatherless. Sorry if that sounded a little off to some of you, but you all got to understand that we need a plural second person in English. So why are widows and orphans special? Why not include any poor people? Widows and orphans aren't a huge social and economic problem today, but let's think about how they were created in the ancient world. Typically, the father or husband in the family would die perhaps in war or from disease, and his family would be left destitute. They would have no means of income. In this situation, they can't be allowed to be impoverished. This can be interpreted in a number of ways. It could be active impoverishment, as in people trying to make the life of these people worse than it already is. But given their circumstances, passive impoverishment would seem sufficient, as in we can't let people be greatly impoverished. We have to suspend their exposure to destruction. If good is creation, evil is destruction. We have to limit the effects of evil on their lives. 
we're not talking about total redistribution of all assets. We're just talking about putting a stop, a limitation on the effects of extreme poverty. So this suspension of destruction is closely tied to holiness later on. The, the, the mitzvah of giving and supporting the, the widow and the orphan and, and the poor as well is something that is connected to holiness. It is fundamental to the concept of holiness. So it leads to our third economic Torah principle. We have to defend the weak against loss and destruction. The question is how? There are a few later cases in the Torah, a few later commandments, which can help us understand the methods of accomplishing this. First, when the tithing is taken, from Devarim 14.28. At the end of every three years, even in the same year, you shall bring forth all the tithe of your increase and shall lay it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with thee, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that within, there are within thy gates, shall come and shall eat and be satisfied, that the Lord thy God may bless you in all the work of your hand which thou doest. This isn't about sustenance. Every three years isn't enough to keep people alive, and there is no notion of storage in this verse. The widow and the orphan eat and are satisfied. They don't take stuff home. Instead, this is about acknowledging the rights of those who have no portion of their own. Essentially, it is saying that if Hashem is giving you an inheritance because of your relationship to Him, you must remember that these people also have a relationship with God from which they derive blessing. They aren't excluded just because they don't have land. This gives us a fourth principle. Poverty does not exclude you from the right to a relationship with God. This may not seem economic on its face, but it speaks to the importance of going beyond simple poverty relief. The more common relief for the widow and the orphan appears three times in various forms. I'll take the longest of them, from Devarim 24. You shall not pervert the justice due to the stranger or to the fatherless, nor take the widow's raiment to pledge. But you shall remember that you were a bondman in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field, and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, for the widow. Then the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the bows again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it after yourselves. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And you shall remember that you were a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Hashem made us slaves in Egypt. People have argued in the past that Hashem puts the poor in their circumstances, and so somehow it's right. But the Torah is suggesting that it's not right. The reality that people find themselves doesn't speak to what they deserve. It just speaks to the situation. But there's an economic here, lesson here as well that's even more important. The poor in this situation don't have a right to finished goods. They don't get bread and wine and olives you can actually eat. They get grain and grapes and raw olives. Before these things become the foods they are intended to be, they must be processed. Put another way, the widow and the orphan must participate in the act of creation. This isn't a cruelty. This is a blessing. They may not own the land or have planted the crops, but they can have a hand in the creation of their food. 
In the case of grain, the most fundamental of the foodstuffs, they have to glean, to dry, to thresh, to grind, and to bake. This is hard work. Grinding in particular is heavy industry. This is the act of creation, of imitating the divine. And this is a path to fulfillment, despite one's circumstances. Here in Israel, there's a charity that picks crops for the poor. I suggested to them that perhaps donors should buy rights to the fields, and then the poor should pick the crops rather than the donors. I suggested this to them, and they replied, quote, We'd have to figure out a way to make sure that this is done with dignity so it doesn't make anyone feel like they have to work for their supper. But that's exactly the point. It is far more, more fulfilling and empowering to work for your supper than to have it handed to you. So this leads to my fifth principle of Torah economics. Charity should provide the poor with a part in the process of creation. Of course, not all of Torah economics is about poverty. The most striking examples of Torah economics are the Yovel and Jewish slavery. Let's start with slavery. In essence, Jewish men could be enslaved because of debts. Most typically, this is due to fines they couldn't repay. Their family was supposed to bail them out, and if they didn't, they'd be sold to pay their debts. The period of enslavement was limited to six years, and in that time, nothing that those slaves created would belong to them, not even their children or relationship. Everything would belong to their owner, and in turn, those they had owned money or fines to. It would seem like this is creation without acquisition, but in fact, that which they acquire for their owners is really going to pay off their own debts. On the day of their sale, they acquired a large sum to cover the debts which they then work off. And when they are released, there is forbidden. There's no possibility of there being a payment necessary. So slavery is really a way of clearing debts and resetting the clock, kind of like bankruptcy. The most famous example of this is the Shemitah, the seven-year cycle in which debts are erased. It is, to say the least, seriously controversial from an economic perspective. I have a master's in finance, and I have struggled with it for years. Nonetheless, it and the limits on Jewish slavery suggest that there should be a limit on the power of debt. This limit on debt is given a specific and modern form in the prohibition on the time value of money. For those of you who aren't aware, the time value of money is a principle that says money in the hand now is worth more than the same sum promised sometime later. The time value of money is why we have interest. If I loan you $1,000, there's a risk that you won't pay me back. So I demand $1,100 back, for example. The risk of the situation drives me to set a minimum reward. The higher risk the borrower, the higher the rate. The more uncertain the economy, the higher the rate. The Torah prohibits interest. Not only that, but it prohibits the time value of money in the sale of land. We have to price land by the value of its remaining crops until the Yovel. Later crops aren't worth less than earlier crops. The time value of money, the pricing of risk into transactions, is prohibited. Now this is silly from a standard economic view. But while debt is prohibited, investment isn't. You can buy land based on the crops it is expected to yield and then improve that land through clearing and terraces or better drainage. When you do this, you are creating a greater opportunity. It would seem, given the economic restraints, that this is the only sensible way to buy land. You can invest with an eye to opportunity, but you can't have a baseline return required from those you lend money to. So what's the fundamental difference 
between investment and debt. Interest-bearing debt gives solidity to the concept of risk. It makes risk real. Whether or not anything bad actually happens, you're pricing it in. If destruction is evil, then debt establishes evil, whether or not it will actually occur. But equity investment is about opportunity. It is about creation and thus goodness. It is about enabling us to follow in the path of Hashem. So we have a seventh principle. Debt should be discouraged because it gives evil reality. And there is one last principle, the principle of Shabbat. The Shabbat, in some form or another, applies to everything. It applies to men, women, slaves, animals, and strangers. It is the day of holiness specifically created by rest from work. We don't create or destroy on the Shabbat. We attempt to touch the, to touch the timeless. Through the Shemitah, it even applies to land. And so this gives us our last principle. Every person must have an opportunity for holy restfulness. This, of course, ties back into debt. Debt forces the maximization of returns. You can't take a day or a year off because you have debt to service, not just your own less costly need for food and clothing. In our world, debt drives up the cost of fixed assets, specifically housing. It drives up rents and mortgages alike. If you are indebted, you can never really rest. And, of course, when financial headwinds hit, debt just serves to amplify them. Corona is about to make that clearer than it has been in many, many years. So putting everything together, we have an economic system which is neither conservative nor liberal. Let's review our principles. One, creation is critical, but acquisition is not. Two, we have a right to engage in creative work. Three, we have to defend the weak against loss and destruction. Four, poverty does not exclude you from a right to a relationship with God. Five, charity should provide the poor with a part in the process of creation. Six, debt should be discouraged because it gives reality to evil. And seven, every person must have an opportunity for holy restfulness. These seven principles may seem like contrary goals. To give one example... Welfare would seem to undermine creation. We are driven from the garden precisely so that we will create, which we weren't doing when we had everything handed to us. But let's restructure this list a little bit. Let's boil it down to three principles. One, we have a right to engage in creative work, but creation is not the same as acquisition. Two, we have to defend the weak against loss and destruction, but charity should provide the poor with a part in the process of goodness, which is creation, and holiness, which is rest with God. And three, we must make space for holy restfulness. This is not a conservative or liberal approach. This is its own thing, speaking another language that happens to have both liberal and conservative aspects. In fact, we can boil it down one more level to a single point. We should enable everyone to participate in the positive cycle of goodness and holiness. Just as Hashem creates for six days and rests on the seventh, we should all have an opportunity to follow in His path. I believe it is by far the most common road to human fulfillment. Let's make it a bit more secular, though. We should enable everyone to participate in the positive cycle of creation and rest. I'm not going to talk about policy in this episode. Of course, I have policies that speak to this in the areas of taxation and welfare, healthcare, education models, and of course, the encouragement of new forms of equity to replace debt. They aren't conservative or liberal policies, but they have aspects of each. 
I can certainly talk about these policies and argue about them. But before we do any of that, there's a simple question. As we go through this period of transformation, what should we aspire to? My answer is, we should enable everyone to participate in the positive cycle of creation and rest. So I have one question for you. What do you think? Thank you for listening and have a good and productive week.